Hi, this is Azimuth World Foundation's podcast, Connecting the Dots. With the help of our guests, we will be connecting the dots between matters of access to public health and safe water and the balance between humankind and nature among indigenous and rural communities. Welcome to Connecting the Dots. I'm Mariana Marx, president of Azimuth World Foundation and your host for this episode. In a rapidly changing world, the urgency to protect nature is undeniable. The climate and biodiversity crisis affects us all, but its impact is particularly acute in Africa and all of the global south. Recent studies reveal a staggering 69% decline in wildlife populations between 1970 and 2018, a start signal of the sixth extinction primarily driven by human activities like land use, resource exploitation, and pollution. However, there's an uncomfortable truth we must confront. The climate change and biodiversity crisis, largely caused by the West's lifestyles and consumption patterns, disproportionately affects communities in Africa and all of the global south. Despite contributing minimally to global carbon emissions, these communities bear the brunt of environmental disasters and extreme weather events. And that's not all. In the West, we often envision conservation through romanticized images of pristine natural landscapes inhabited by charismatic megafauna. These visuals of these animals' lives and the looming prospect of their imminent extinction presented in HD photography and 4K documentaries evoke powerful emotions and sometimes a sense of guilt and complicity in the destruction of nature, leading to generous financial support for conservation organizations. These conservation organizations often displace communities by creating pristine nature wildlife reserves or parks, and thus conservation refugees expelled from their ancestral lands. Ironically, it is these very communities that have conserved the areas through their lifestyles and ancestral knowledge of the land and ecosystems. Even more ironically, this further, contribu- this further contributes to the loss of biodiversity. Financial resources continue to pour into international organizations establishing protected areas, and we continue to fail to fully understand the intricate complexities at play. By doing so, we perpetuate the cycles of exploitation and colonialism that have ravaged and plundered the indigenous communities who have stewarded wildlife habitats since time immemorial. We support outside actors who arrive to take control and manage Africa's resources, perpetuating a pattern where the West seizes control over regions and communities far removed from their own, further marginalizing the affected populations. Conservation is is exceedingly intricate reality, deeply entangled with history of colonialism and the global capitalist market. Its geopolitical implications and impact on local populations should not be underestimated. While the concept of protected areas appears deceptively simple and universally, it masks a complex, at times violent and corrupt reality. Stripping away the powerful myth-making machine surrounding conservation requires a candid and unflinching gaze into its inner workings. Guiding us on this journey to explore the path of decolonizing conservation is Dr. Abby Sen, a distinguished faculty member in Parks and Conservation Area Management at Clemson University, South Carolina. 
Dr. Sen is a trained interdisciplinary environmental social researcher committed to advancing social and ecologically fair approaches to managing public lands, natural resources, and cultural heritage in both the US and Africa. Her groundbreaking research delves into the intersections of parks and protected area gov governance, livelihoods, nature-based tourism, and the relationship between race and nature. For over a decade, Dr. Sen has collaborated closely with government agencies in the US and Africa, contributing to the formulation of integrated management plans for vital conservation areas of global significance, addressing the critical nexus of biodiversity and socioeconomic development. With her extensive writings on the colonial structures of power and conservation, Dr. Avi Sen has shed light on essential issues that demand our attention and action. We are eager for our listeners to join us in exploring your extraordinary work as it inspires all to embark on a transformative journey towards decolonizing conservation. Dr. Avi Singh, thank you for be being with us today. To start, could you share with us your journey into conservation and how you began questioning mainstream ideas surrounding conservation in Africa? Well, thank you so much for having me, Mariana and the Azimuth World Foundation. It's really an honor to join you today on this very important um, conversation. Thank you again for the invitation. Um, so my journey as a into this work that I'm doing now in uh, biodiversity conservation, both in Africa, but also in the U.S., in the U.S. focusing specifically with African-American communities, um, it really started during my road trips growing up um, throughout West Africa, um, road trips, family road trips with my dad, my father and my sisters, uh, my parents. I'm a national of Senegal. I was born in Senegal, but we lived in Niger, Mali, Burkina Faso and um, Ghana as well. So most of my trip were mostly concentrated um, in West Africa. And we visited several national parks on each of those, um, all of those road trips. And that's where I really began um, taking a keen interest in uh, biodiversity conservation in general, right? The idea of parks and protected areas was through those travel, um, visiting those national parks. Um, it also, while I had this notion of protecting biodiversity. I also did understand the centrality of how local communities are able, you know, actually cared for that land and their deep connection with the wildlife through a lot of those um, road trips that I had, I was taking. Um, the ways in which they were working the land, they cared for the land, right? The ways in which they also were able, for example, or had a deep knowledge of wildlife, right? Using their own uh, languages to describe move, wildlife movement, but also being able to predict seasonal patterns um, based on some of that, um, the wildlife that they were observing around them. And so those were my transformative years where I started gaining an interest in both conservation, but also in development, right? It wasn't just that um, I had a keen interest in wildlife conservation alone, but I also had a deep interest in rural development, having also witnessed the 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 some of the issues, the socioeconomic issues that some of these communities were um, facing or subjected to. When I went to college, I was very much interested in understanding how can biodiversity conservation or the preservation of our natural resources also work 
work for, um, you know, as a catalyst for rural development or developing some of those communities. And so that's when I, you know, I took on environmental economics as my major um, in college, um, realized that economic models were not really under, you know, capturing some of what I had, um, you know, um, experience or also even witnessed during those trips. So then I moved on to um, to ecotourism and nature-based tourism, for example, right? Because again, protected areas were really stood out in my mind as a model for biodiversity conservation. And so I, this was really um, the journey that I had taken on going into parks and protected areas, a central piece to both leveraging biodiversity conservation, but also rural development, right? That That is really the paradigm that I had bought into. It wasn't until I did my dissertation research in Senegal, or even prior to that, when I had observed, for example, conflicts between farmers. I will never forget one time when I lived in Ghana, where the newspaper came up and said the farmers are looking to, you know, threatening to mm -hmm. burn um, a national park. And that was really an awakening moment into understanding what has driven these farmers, right, these villagers to want to burn the national park or burn the forest that were in the enclosed in the national park. Right. What has driven this aversion towards this national park? Right. These are the people that have cared for the land and now the complete flip to want to burn it. And this is when my the question starting started to 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 arise in my mind and realizing how conflictual Western model of biodiversity conservation that has been imposed on the African continent, mm -hmm. right? How in conflict it was with the African-centered or African models of biodiversity conservation. So there's those are two very divergent models. And mm -hmm. this is when I really started exploring both uh, both of those paradigms to see where the, the, the conflict arose. Well, and that takes me to my, my next question, actually. So the post-2020 global biodiversity framework, commonly known as 30 by 30, aims to set aside 30% of terrestrial cover for conservation by 2030. What are the implications of this initiative for indigenous communities and what's at stake under the guise of biodiversity conservation? Yes. Um, and so plain and simple, um, the, the the plan to expand uh, the number or to double, I should say, the coverage of protected area by 2030 will result in dispossession, right? That is the mm -hmm. most fundamental and, you know, um, concern that we have, right? Um, so there is going to be uh, mass displacement, right? We've already started seeing it, for example, with the Maasai community last year who were threatened, you know, who are currently facing massive eviction. It was about, I think, 70 to 80,000 Maasai mm -hmm. um, people in Luliondo and Gorongoro conservation area. And the world has witnessed the violence of conservation then, right? But you know, this the Maasai are not a unique case. Um, I mean, they're a classic case, but they're not a mm -hmm. unique case. Throughout the continent, there are 
particularly pastoralists who are being either forced to sedentarize, but who are also losing grazing land and their ancestral land in the name of conservation. Fishers are also losing fishing grounds in the name of conservation, right? And farmers too, and hunters, right? These are Africans who have deep connection to those land whose livelihoods are being threatened right now under the name of conservation. Um, what is very um, alarming to me is the pace at which it is going to happen, right? Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if we think about the first national park or protected area was uh, was Yellowstone National Park. And that was in uh, um, 1872 in the settler colony that is called United States today when the indigenous communities were forcibly removed to establish protected areas, right? Mm -hmm. So that has opened up a wave of protected areas in much of the colonial world and further dispossessing communities. There has been an estimation that there were around 110 million people, indigenous people who have been displaced, indigenous and local native mm -hmm. communities that have been displaced as a result of, of the establishment of protected areas, right? But that has been over 150 years. Now, imagine trying to double that number within 10 years. Um, and so, yes, the scale at which and the, the, the pace at which the dispossession is going to happen is quite, um, it's very uh, concerning. And it's already mm -hmm. resulting in, in, in um, indigenous rights violation. It's already even resulting in indigenous murder right murders yes. of indigenous mm -hmm. environment you know environmental activists i mean there had there was a global witness has reported that it was in 2020 where it's there's been about 200 indigenous environmental activists who were murdered from the global south um and all of those are related to wanting to fight for their you know, to retain the, 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 the rights to those land. You know, but many conservation projects uh, claim to be community-centered, uh, incorporating community education and even participation. However, you've discussed the two implications of community-based natural resource management and its impact on indigenous self-determination. Uh, can you share your insights and, and give us some examples so we can also understand the connection? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So, um, so to really understand community-based natural resources, you know, the context of it all, it's important to also place it historically and, and what are really the major factors that led to the emergence of community-based natural resources. And when I say community-based natural resources, it's also, it's the same as community-based conservation um, or conservancies, as they call it as well, right? So they're different iteration, but basically community-based natural resource management or community-based um, conservation, which I will call uh, CBC from here on now, is that hereafter, is that it gives a space for the local community um, to manage um, conservation projects, right? And there are different mm -hmm. ways to do that. Or not only to manage conservation projects, but also to be able to benefit economically, right, from, mm -hmm. from conservation projects, right? You know, CBC projects really um, started to emerge 
as a result, you know, based because of two global factors, right? It was um, first, it was really the backlash against fortress conservation, right? That fortress conservation leads to impover- further impoverishment. Fortress conservation is also dispossessing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's dispossessing local communities, but it's also really severing their ties to their ancestral land, right? Mm-hmm. And it has also resulted in backlash in terms of ha- retaliation by local communities, as I had to explain with that anecdote earlier, you know, when the farmers had threatened to burn to burn the national park, right? And so it became very counterproductive, but it was also because of indigenous resistance to against fortress conservation in, mm-hmm. in throughout the 70s, 80s, and so on, right? And so that was one push towards community-based conservation um, or community-based natural resource management. But the second factor was that also the realization that indigenous communities also play a very a critical role, or I should even say are fundamental, right, to biodiversity conservation, right? They, through their livelihood practices, but also their spirituality, right? Like people are finally, we're finally recognizing that indigenous communities are the reason why these landscape became, you know, were so well mm-hmm. preserved, right? Mm-hmm. Through the, their own, mm-hmm. um, customary their own indigenous natural resource management system it was in um the the rio summit right in 1992 the un environmental uh summit in yes the rio summit of uh, rio de janeiro summit in 1992 that actually gave a greater space into mm-hmm. the conservation discourse you know um for local for indigenous communities it was against the backdrop of the uh of 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 that declaration the UN declaration of 1992 that um CBC started to proliferate throughout Africa and not just in Africa but even mm-hmm. um in Latin America in Asia and so um what that what, what happened was that often happened was that um there were some institutional reforms at the in protected area governance right in national parks governance that um <clears throat> that created community based organization at the local level and this cbc i'm sorry this community based organization were in charge of uh, representing the interests of the community, right, mm-hmm. um, in the decision-making process of how those resources should be managed. So that's one institutional aspect of it. The second, <laughs> the second aspect was that there were also conservation projects, but also governments had to work together to create um, economic activities that would benefit local communities. Mm-hmm. And so tourism became, this is when tourism became key, really started to gain a foot ground, a, a foothold in conservation, right? They started selling community-based tourism projects around mm-hmm. national parks saying, hey, you know, if you, if this community-based conservation projects benefits local communities and it also serves to protect the wildlife as well. Now, one thing if you hear me everything that I have described so far 
right, is around economic economic benefit, right? How can we, and also uh, institutional reform. <clears throat> One thing that is not, uh, that was thoroughly missing in the discourse was also self-determination for indigenous communities, mm-hmm. right? Indigenous communities were very clear from the beginning that what they wanted was self-determination, right? The right to be able to benefit from those conservation projects, but also be able to determine what what activities they were, you know, they were able to um, to take on on those lands. Mm-hmm. But what community-based natural resource management does is, sure, you know, we will what we will do is create an institution, you know, to represent to be the voice of the community, right? But we are going to tell you what kind of activities you can you can you can um, take on on those lands still. So. There is no self-determination there. There is no sovereignty, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, while community-based conservation was a progress towards, you know, including indigenous voices into those spaces, mm-hmm. it actually had not responded to the demands of indigenous communities for sovereignty and self-determination, right? Right, being able to get that land back and being able to exercise their traditional right, their birthrights, right, of exercising those um, um, customary resource management systems um, that has actually preserved the land. It's still, it was, you know, community based conservation, how they were able to benefit from it was imposed by international conservation um, agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that sensational images can create uh, mis- misperceptions about land death and conservation. And you just referred a while ago to Maasai, and I was thinking about the recent Maasai evictions in Wogondo uh, in Tanzania, for example. So what are the best ways and platforms to advance the discourse on decolonizing conservation? And what actions can people actually take to contribute to this movement? Yeah, absolutely. And so in my piece in the Republic that's published in the Republics is against mm-hmm. wildlife, uh, wildlife Republics. And the Republic is a Pan-African uh, review um, that is based in Nigeria. Um, <clears throat> so in there, I talk about the danger of... Uh, um, of seeing the Maasai case, or no, I, I shouldn't say the, the 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 danger, right? It's not. It's very real, right? The violence against the Maasai mm-hmm. is real, is raw, right? Um, and so they were deserved to be exposed, absolutely. Mm-hmm. What I was trying to explain is that it could, however, lead to the misperception that um, that the violence had to be sensational, right? And direct in order to create the same outcomes of dispossession, right? Mm -hmm. So the military shows up as we have seen in the Maasai case and started to forcibly evict them. That was really a last resort, right? That was the last Mm -hmm. resort because the the, the Maasai community have really put up a resistance upfront for a very, very long time. What I was trying to explain is that we need to pay also to also pay attention to those instances where they're not um, where eviction are not as violent as what we have seen in the case of the Maasai. What usually happens 
right, is that there is the rewriting of environmental laws over time, right? There are different ways. You either rewrite environmental laws mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to actually be able to evict, right, to forcibly evict them, or what I call manufactured, manufactured consent is state-sanctioned deprivation of those communities, right? You're starting you know, what the state can do is either withdraw public services, right? Like schools, hospitals, right? Water, for example, right? So that they create the conditions of impoverishment so that it's easier for uh, communities to accept the relocation, right? That's what we call, that's what it's called, you basically manufacturing consent. (laughs) And then they label it as, as um, how do you say voluntary relocation, right? And so, and that's what happens in a lot of cases too. I'm seeing um, in in for example in the Casamance region where um, in Senegal where there are talks around carbon offset projects as well, which um, <laughs> which is a different form of conservation. It's all the same predatory practices where people are conceding to carbon offset projects. Because, right, it is the only alternative they have. These these communities are extremely impoverished, right? They don't have schools. They don't have, I mean, the schools are in poor conditions. The hospitals are in poor conditions. And so when you have a private actor, someone like Shell, for example, Shell Oil or BP that comes in and say, we want a carbon offset project with you or biodiversity offset project with you, we'll give you this much money, you know, you have no other choice but to say, well, you know, um, I will will we'll buy onto that project, even though it seems very nebulous. They have no other choice, right? Because it's the better alternative, even if it's not a good alternative, it's the better one. And so, and that what that's what happens often um, in a lot of these cases. And so, what I was trying to explain by using sensationalizing is, you know the violence doesn't have to be sensational for it to be to produce the same violent outcomes over time right and there's an often overlooked connection between protected areas and global extractive projects and you just you know named a few uh, can you help us understand this link and its transparency or rather a lack of transparency to local yeah. communities and global audiences yes um absolutely so <laughs> something um that is often overlooked is how protected areas have actually become sites of extraction right the narrative at the beginning was that protected area is actually the how do you say it is the um protected areas are actually the solution to extraction right or is the opposite of extraction right you take land you put it aside and there's no extraction happening there um which is actually a myth right because extraction still happen in protected areas on the contrary biodiversity conservation right wildlife conservation is just a guise for further extraction, right? Mm-hmm. It's a guise to be able to dispossess local communities, right, without any public scrutiny, because really, who wants to fight protecting nature, right? Like, <laughs> it's hard, you know, it, it gives them a moral high ground 
for which to be able to give social license to the dispossession of local communities. But then somewhere five, five, 10, 20 years down the road, they're able to give private concessions, right, for two extractive industries to be able to extract on those land. Um, and it happens, you know, extraction, uh, uh, it's actually like logging, right? I talk about extraction, what kind of extraction. You have yeah. logging happening in protected areas. You have mining happening in protected areas, right? Um, it was the um, the Rainforest Foundation Mapping for Rights Project actually maps in Central, in Central Africa, right? They are mapping right now all the private concessions that have been given to extractive industries within those places in Central Africa. So I really encourage everyone, you know, our, your listeners to take a look at it. It's the Rainforest Foundation Mapping for Rights Project. Um, and so, but not just there, you know, not just in Central Africa, in, you know, I give the example to in Senegal, where there's a lot of mining also happening in Nyokolokoba by Petowal mining industry within the park, Nyokolokoba um, National Park, right? Um, and so there is mining, there is logging, but there is also the declassification of, of protected areas, right? Uh, or part of it anyway, to be able to give it to plant to agribusinesses. Mm -hmm. um, there's currently a battle at Jael uh, Wildlife Refuge in the north of Senegal, where the government has degazetted about 2018, I'm sorry, in 2018, about 2,000 hectares of land from there to give it to an agribusiness in, in um, I think it's an Italian agribusiness, San Uil, to be able to have a plantation in that area, right? Like um, farm that land with Truos protected area when there are still active land claims by the local community to be able to get that land back, right? And so it's protected areas now have just become really an excuse to dispossess local communities and then place it under the auspices of the extractive industry, but also under the auspices of the um, all these African governments that are later on down the line going to sell that land to whoever, you know, to the highest leader. Yeah. Um, and that's what's happening too with... Um, uh, with carbon offset markets or biodiversity offset too, right? Like yeah. those are the people, the buyers of carbon offset market <laughs> of carbon offset projects are extractive yeah. industries. Yeah, I was like, going to actually touch specifically that important uh, point and subject and how are protected areas being integrated into the global carbon markets, right? And what are the actual results results in terms of halting emissions, deforestation, biodiversity loss, pollution? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So um it's um so carbon offset, it's basically it's a global extractive project, right? Like carbon offset projects, all in the and biodiversity. So there's carbon and there's biodiversity offset mm -hmm. project, right? It's mm -hmm. basically Plain and simple, it legitimizes the plundering of nature. That's it, right? It, it legitimizes the extraction of our by you know the 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 ecological destruction of the planet. So it's the idea is 
You can pollute here. You can extract here as long as you go here and protect this land, right? Or plant so many forests for or so many trees, and then that will offset whatever, uh, um, how do you say, destruction you've done on this side. And so who are the highest bidders for those? Obviously, they're the extractive project. Right now in Senegal, you know, Shell, BP, Petowal are all in on board with buying carbon uh, carbon projects in the south of Senegal on the mangroves, um, but um, and 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 so with the the understanding that they are able to mine for gas, you know, to completely deregulate too. It also gives them the green light to be able to do to to, to take on ecologically destructive practices, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it only accelerates, right? It actually it doesn't resolve the issue because you are not stopping the ecological destruction, right? On the contrary, you are legitimizing it, right? By later on saving a forest on this side, but but even the economic models that they are using in carbon offset, actually the science that they're using to show that that forest is actually offsetting the amount of pollution is completely bogus. It has been completely debunked, Mm -hmm. right? No amount of offset is going to completely, you know, carbon is going to offset how much pollution, how much destruction has already been happening, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's one. But two, you are also, through this carbon offset project or this biodiversity offset project, you are dispossessing, you are actually removing the very people who have spent centuries protecting that land. It is not, it is not accidental that, the land that you are that is now targeted for protected areas are the very land that have been under the 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 the, the care the stewardship of indigenous people it is precisely because they have cared for that land that these lands are now some of the most biodiverse it, you know it's you, you are creating or you are fixing a problem that does not exist on that land in the first place right these people mm-hmm. are there to protect the land why are you removing removing them from from that land right um and all of that under the guise of conservation but also all of that to further seed land for carbon offsets so that the global north or all of these extractive projects can continue the plunder of nature elsewhere it solves no problem at all if anything it further accelerates deforestation it accelerates um it also accelerates um pollution right and it mm-hmm. continues the violation you know the violence against indigenous communities and so the best way really to protect those land is to really really fight for indigenous sovereignty on those lands right that is plain and simple there's no other way if conservation projects or in the if environmental projects are not centering the issue of indigenous sovereignty then they are not they're not working towards conservation we can't agree more with you um yeah and as an academic, are there robust groups of researchers working towards decolonizing conservation, or is it still a quite lonely pursuit? <laughs> well, 
You know, I would say that it's actually growing. Um, there, it's. Let me say this: in conservation, wildlife conservation itself is still because it's still a lonely pursuit, right? But there are others outside of wildlife conservation, you know, who are actually understanding how how um, colonial still wildlife conservation is. And I've had to really uh, go in those spaces outside of outside of wildlife conservation to be able to make those connections. But in our in in our field in wildlife, in biodiversity conservation, it's still a bit lonely in a way, right? Not just for, but there's still the number of researchers recently that have contacted me um, who are actually young, a lot of them are doctoral students who have contacted me and wanted, as a result of reading my work, mm-hmm. have has been very, very encouraging. Um, mm-hmm. But in academia, it's still very much, mm-hmm. um, it can be very lonely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but NG, you know, there are other foundations like yours, for example, outside of academia, I think it's where I have found the most uh, fulfilling uh, connections that I have made in that space, right? In decolonial, decolonizing conservation space. So kind of the last question um, is, what is your vision for a future of just decolonized conservation? Do you think it's achievable? Would you say that guaranteeing indigenous sovereignty is the essential first step in that direction? Absolutely. I mean, there is no question around it. I think that the question of indigenous sovereignty, of sovereign, you know, sovereignty over how to govern natural resources, how to benefit from natural resources must be front and center. You know, indigenous, but also um, local communities as well. I know there's a lot of, how do you say, um, confounding of indigenous and local communities, but there are also political tension around that world. But I'm going to use that, you know, indigenous and local communities just as a political umbrella, right? But the sovereignty over governance of, you know, sovereignty of governance over natural resources must be front and center. And then after that, what comes after that is how do you even protect, right? How do you create the conditions under which that sovereignty becomes sustainable, right? Because we can talk about land back and we've seen it. We have seen land restitution to local communities who ended up selling that land. Why? Because of impoverishment too, right? Like how do we also create the conditions under which that sovereignty remains, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and for that is also understanding how do you improve the material conditions of, of indigenous communities so that Later, when a predatory threat, uh, when a threat is coming in or private interests are coming in, they are able to better negotiate the terms of that, um, you know, those um, sharing of land, if, if, if possible, if it can happen at all. But also what kind of activities can be done on their land rather than forcibly or having no other choice but to sell that land because they don't have any other opportunities or economic opportunities. One thing is also completely decentering protected areas as a of a primary mode of conservation, right? Like protected areas in a sense that uh, that is completely devoid of humans, right? Like 
indigenous communities on their land, right? They have for a long time have cared for sacred forests, sacred mangroves. Again, thinking about the Jola people in Southern Casamas who through their spiritual practices, right, have created their own protected areas. That is the, the, you know, the sacred mangroves of Casamas are a perfect example. And there are tons of sacred spaces in there too, right? So Indigenous sovereignty, yes, improving the indigenous, sorry, the, the material condition of indigenous communities, but decentering first and foremost the Western model of conservation that has no vision for culture within those or, or, or humans within those protected areas, um, and recentering indigenous worldviews into um into biodiversity conservation. Dr. Avisen, thank you so much for sharing your incredible insights on decolonizing conservation, in particular in Africa. It's been real an enlightening conversation, and we hope to continue following your extraordinary work. Thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's been a very um, rich conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in to Connecting the Dots. Be an ally, stay curious. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Connecting the Dots, an Azimuth World Foundation podcast. Join the conversation on our website, azimuthworldfoundation.org, or by following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn.